So good evening. Welcome. Uh, my name is Ron Anderson. I'm a professor of finance here and currently head of department. Um, first, can everybody hear me? Is it uh, functioning properly? It's okay up there? Okay, good. Nice to see some old friends, uh, some graduates from a couple years back, uh, and uh, lots, of, uh, lots of friends who've come for uh, these events in the past. Tonight it's my honor to uh, introduce to you um, Professor George Constantinides from the University of Chicago. He's currently visiting the LSE as the BP professor at LSE. So it's a great honor to uh, have George with us. He's going to talk to us about something that is uh, a very interesting intellectual puzzle, something that's been of interest to both academics and practitioners. Um, before I turn uh, the floor over to George, I'm going to ask my colleague, Professor Siddipto Bhattacharya, longtime uh, friend and collaborator of George Constantinides, to say a word or two about uh, George. Uh, and uh, then we'll have George give his uh, talk. And then we'll throw the uh, floor uh, open for some questions. Thanks very much. <coughs> Pleasure to introduce my good friend and longtime colleague, George. Uh, we first overlapped in a year that I was at the University of Chicago, and George came to visit from Carnegie Mellon. It's, uh, it's, nice, it's good to note that George has a longstanding connection with England. Not only does he have several close family members here, his early education was in England, where he studied uh, physics, I believe, bachelor's and master's degrees at uh, Oxford before going on to the University of Indiana to do his PhD in management studies, after which he first job he was at Carnegie Mellon University. Uh, his thesis itself was pioneering. It was one of the first rigorous exercises in continuous time on modeling portfolio theory with transactions costs. And after coming to Chicago, George's attention switched to more uh, pricing-related issues. He did some work on <coughs> economies with heterogeneous agents and when that the pricing in those economies could be mapped into pricing similar to those in economies with uh, homogeneous agents. Uh, he worked further on transactions costs. He also worked with John Ingersoll and by himself on theories of uh, equilibria with capital, capital gains taxation, including the optimal dynamic realization of capital gains and its implications for pricing. And since then, his two major themes have been on explaining the equity premium puzzle through various methodologies. One of them has been what's called habit formation preferences, which you'll go into in greater detail about how uh, past consumption affects your uh, expected level of current consumption and hence your risk aversion towards variations in consumption. And also various market incompleteness, including incompleteness arising from overlapping generations of agents, some of which are more financially constrained than others. And even in areas where George hasn't worked so systematically on, like corporate finance, his uh, accomplishments are singular in that the papers have been very well received. For example, he has a paper on uh, signaling via stock repurchase and investments in a corporate finance context, very well-known paper with Bruce Grundy. And George has been a great colleague for the profession. He was one of the founder members of the society that set up the Review of Financial Studies, which was an important new journal in finance that started about 20 years ago. He's been a past president of the American Finance Association. And overall, broadly in the profession, George is thought of not only as a great scholar, but as a genuinely nice guy. And the biggest proof of that is when we edited our two volumes of readings together, again about 20 years ago, all the people selected look up to George and praise him for selecting their papers. And the papers who are not selected, their authors blame me. So there I go to introduce George. Thank you. Thank you, Speaker. Uh, dear colleagues, uh, students, uh, ladies and gentlemen, it is... Uh, with great humility and pride that I have accepted the invitation to spend this uh, land term as uh, the centennial uh, uh, British uh, Petroleum Centennial Professor at the LSE. And I would like to take this opportunity to thank uh, my colleagues for their warm hospitality at the LSE 
and uh, in particular the chairman uh, Ron Anderson and the director of the LSE David Webb and also I would like to thank my colleagues for providing me with this most stimulating research environment. Uh, on a more personal note I would like to point out as uh, my good friend Sudipto Badacharya has said that uh, our friendship goes back uh, about almost uh, practically 30 years uh, from now when we are both struggling assistant professors at the University of Chicago. Uh, thank you Sudipto for your uh, great introduction. This is what friends are for. Um, I'm standing here with humility because the LSE has a venerable tradition in economics in general and uh, the financial markets uh, in particular. Um, as you know, the motto of the LSE is, um, I had to polish my uh, Latin here, rerum uh, cognoscere causas, which means to those of us who don't speak Latin, uh, to know the causes of things. Uh, the particular topic of my lecture is the equity premium puzzle, and um, the puzzle itself, uh, which has been the cause of much anxiety over the last quarter of a century, is uh, uh, evidence which uh, is uh, interpreted as failure of the standard rational economic model uh, to explain two things, the large average premium of the aggregate return of stocks over the riskless rate and the relatively small average return of short-term bonds. So the premium is too high, the risk-free rate is too low. So in good LSE tradition, I'll uh, take you through my research journey, which spans a couple of uh, decades. In my attempt, uh, along with very many other uh, uh, very worthy colleagues, to understand the causes of the equity premium. I'll also attempt to illustrate to you why in this particular instance, understanding the causes of things is important for the economist and the practitioner alike. We are not going to, in the spell of 45 minutes, fully go through this, but I think I'll try to uh, uh, explain to you why we are asking these questions in, in uh, two groups, we as uh, professional academics and also why we teach some of, those things, some of these things to our MBAs. What is important for both of these groups to understand uh, the economic rationale of what we observe? So now I'll uh, switch to this, and um, probably most of you have a finance background, um, but um, when I motivate this to a non-finance background, I tell them a joke. But um, since I have not thought of another joke for non-finance background, I'll tell you that joke anyway. Uh, and this, the, the way I motivate it, I say, uh, you know the old story, where the a big bank robber was caught and was surrounded by the reporters and uh, one of them asked them, why do you rob banks? And he looked at them as if they were a bunch of morons and said, because that's where the money is. <laughs> well, I think the same answer applies here as well. We study the equity premium because that's where the money is. You know, take it out of short-term interest rate put it in uh, equity, and uh, so the, the equity premium is, shall go through it is large, so that makes sense. So that's where the money is. So let me give you an um, outline of what I'll be talking about. Uh, first, we'll look at the historical evidence, uh, historically how big has been the equity premium, and then we'll sort of try to make some uh, ad hoc corrections what has historically been the premium versus what was expected, what was in investors' mind, the expected long-term premium adjusted for unanticipated events. And then we'll uh, try to explain why that's a puzzle in the first place. And then I'll try to talk about why should we care about it and uh, what are the different ways of uh, resolving the puzzle. And incidentally here, there are many people who have worked on it but I'll choose to make it an idiosyncratic talk, and I'll talk about some specific attempts to explain it that sort of relate to my research contributions here. 
just uh, a technical aside, arithmetic return is defined as the end price divided by the start, start price minus 1%. Arithmetic geometric is the log. In some of the numbers, it's going to be log. To get it back into arithmetic, we should add about 2%. So if we just take a quick look at uh, what the realized uh, equity risk premium per year has been uh, in, uh, from 1925 to the present, uh, we look at these bars that go all over the place. This period corresponds to uh, the period of the 1928 uh, uh, stock market crash. There was another period here that, that they were low. So you see more positives than negatives, but you don't get much of a consistent impression as to what's going on. Uh, we can look at it, but we get a different impression. Uh, first of all, let me def define the equity premium. It is the return on the market, and by market we mean a stock market index, minus the, the return on uh, one-month treasury bill, a short-term instrument. Now, the, from this, that show us as the return on an annual uh, basis. If I look at the 20-year averages, so from 1925, my first uh, point is going to be to 45, so this 25 average and then just uh, a moving window, 20-year moving window, we get a very different picture. And what you see from here is that in any 20-year period, although in some periods it was uh, low, it has been positive in every period. Of course, our econometrician friends here will remind us that you can, these are not independent observations because two adjacent uh, columns have 19 years in common, so they are not independent observations. But still, it is a striking fact here that in this period, there is no 20-year period in which the uh, annualized return has been negative. Uh, and these things uh, matter, and you can look at some numbers. For example, from uh, uh, 1871 to 2004. Incidentally, if we dig to data before 1925, our, our data is a little iffy, but it's very interesting to go as far as we can because we get a better perspective. So this is the U.S. perspective, but i also, also show you the international perspective here. So from 1871 to 2004, $1 invested at the beginning of 1871 would grow, have grown in 2004 to $6,508, and that is adjusted for purchasing power, real terms. The next number is nominal, but the real is the one that matters. Or you can look at from 1926 to 2000, that we have more reliable data, and $1 would grow to 230 and in case sort of our uh, uh, long-run perspective is clouded by the more recent experience, uh, if we include the, uh, the drop in the prices at the beginning of this century, so if we extend from 1926 to 2004, the story is very much the same. One dollar would have grown to $200. As opposed to bonds where uh, from 1926 to 2004, it would grow to only $3. Essentially, the real interest rate is very close to zero. Now, we can look at this in terms of uh, tables here. And uh, of this, let's just look at the um, bold uh, line, which is directly the premium. And whichever sub-period you look at, you see that there's a premium of uh, about uh, 5 to 8 percent. Uh, we are not concerned with the particular number, but the basic impression is that the number is big. And this is what we'll address explain to you why it is a puzzle and how do we explain it and why we want to explain it. Uh, so this is the U.S. experience, and uh, someone cautious will point out that at the beginning of the 20th century, there were exchanges that uh, are now extinct, like the one in Argentina. So maybe we focus a little too much on the U.S. experience because it is the one economy that has taken off. So there is survival bias, as you would say. So one way to address this is, is to look at the international experience where this is for different countries. The, um, the blue line is in terms of a domestic currency and the red line is uh, converting it back into dollar terms. And uh, the fact that the blue lines, the blue columns and the red columns are very much the same means it, it doesn't make any difference. 
And again, you look at, you see, you see that, well, in some countries like Belgium, Italy, Germany, it has been, the premium has been uh, uh, a little low. Incidentally, these are geometric, so to compare the previous numbers, you are at 2%. And uh, it's a little low, it's maybe here, it's, uh, with 2%, it's 4.5. In some other countries, like, like uh, Sweden, is 7.6 plus 2 is 9.6, so it is much larger. And so that says that the kind of number you saw in the U.S., about 6%, is not uh, really out of the norm. So this experience has been so in many different countries. So the equity premium is robust when you look at it across countries. Um, well, actually, this is the return. It's not the premium. And this shows us the red columns are the premium, which, again, you see is about 5% plus the 2% makes it 7%. Now, how large is the equity premium? Now, we saw the numbers. We saw the historical evidence. And here I pick the first number, that the realized U.S. equity premium in the period 1926 to 2004 is about 7.3% per year. But this doesn't tell us what was the expected annualized return over that period. And what I'm worried about is that it's possible that there was once and for all events that happened during this, uh, the 20th century that created a big boost in the stock prices and that this big boost is not going to be repeated in the future. So we want to look at that uh, historical return and try to make an adjustment about what was the, in the investor's mind. So... This is what I want to look at. What was the average expected equity premium in that period? And why, what, what were the kind of events that were so unique to the 20th century, particularly the last quarter of the 20th century? And there's a lot of poss possible reasons, and we're using all these reasons to, ex to, ex to try to rationalize the major run-up in stock market prices in the last uh, decade of the 20th century. And it is the accessibility of stock market information, electronic trading, growth of mutual funds and hedge funds, growth of defined contribution pension plans, the advent of the new economy, demographic changes, the, um, the baby boomers reaching the stage of uh, being, becoming major savers in the market, uh, private equity, increased tolerance for risk, or if all that fails, perhaps irrational bubbles. And this is what I'm trying to resist, because if we end up concluding that we as economists cannot make any sense out of all this, and then we say that it was all irrational, then we'll have to be silent about the future, because there's nothing we can rationalize and therefore cannot forecast. So we'll try to see whether there are rational explanations for some of this, uh, well, for the equity premium. Now, one adjustment we can make is look at the historic equity premium, think in terms of our number, the 7.3%, and adjust it downwards by the annualized growth of the price dividend and or price earnings ratio over the sample period. That's one way which under sort of some mild econometric assumptions can justify as an adjustment from going from the historical to what people expected. So essentially filter out the effect of this uh, events that may not be repeated in the future and were not anticipated at the beginning of the 20th century. So uh, there are some technical assumptions that uh, justify that, but if we look at sort of then the uh, premium with the adjustments, first of all, even though the price-dividend ratio has grown a lot over the 20th century, in that adjustment we have to subtract from the mean annualized mean premium, the historical one, the annualized growth in the price-dividend ratio. And the first, the top panel shows us the annualized growth is about 1%. And the bottom panel shows us the adjustment, the, the, the uh, premium uh, after the adjustment. So the point is uh, that at least that kind of adjustment does not make much of a difference. And the bottom line here is that there's still about a 6% premium that we as economists are called for to explain. 
And you can do the same thing for the international evidence. This is the dividend yield, the dividend price ratio across countries. The green is yield in 1900, and the blue is yield in 2000. So from there, you can find the annualized growth in the dividend price ratio and make the adjustment as we did before. And that is given in the last column, the third from last, this one, is the premium of the countries. And this is, this is the adjustment. And again, the bottom line here is that the adjustment does not amount to much. So there's a, a sizable premium to explain. And uh, for something that is of more interest to practitioners, we hear that uh, all the gurus forecast what the premium is going to be uh, over the next five or ten years. And the kind of number that is being tossed around is about 4%. And let me show you how our simple calculations also can yield a number very much in, of that order of magnitude. So if we start with the 1926 to 2004 realized premium of 7.3%, if we adjust the mean growth for the price-earnings ratio over that period, that annualized growth of the price-to-earnings ratio is 1.07, so that brings it down to 6.23. And then you have to bring in your own assumptions as to what you think will happen to the price-earnings or price-dividend ratio. If it is still too high, and there is going to be further adjustment over the next five or ten years. So here I would have to solicit your views of what will happen to that, and whatever it is, for example, if over the next years you expect the... Uh, the price dividend ratio, price earnings ratio to drop from 20 to a number of 16. Um, what is the 10 year expected annual premium over the next years, next uh, 10 years? And uh, the adjustment would be uh, first to, to find the annual decrease in the price earnings ratio over the next 10 years. That will amount to 2.23%, and adjust further this down to that which gives us a number uh, which is being tossed around is what, it is, what people expect to be the uh, premium over the next uh, five or ten years. Anyway, uh, now that, so that we established a number, and it doesn't matter whether it is five or six or seven percent, something of that order of magnitude, um, we will try to explain it. So, so let's, uh, some, let's uh, talk about the equity premium and uh, tell you why we are, we are making such a big fuss about it, because we all understand that equities are more risky than bonds, and any economic theory would say that there is uh, a reward for risk, so the equity premium is a reward for risk. So why are we making such a big fuss? And they're making such a big fuss because the premium, the puzzle, is a quantitative puzzle. That means that if we start with our standard economic theory with uh, the kind of numbers for risk aversion that we think are representative in the market, and we plug some numbers and do some back from there envelope calculations or some very detailed calculations, yes, we find that we can explain an equity premium, but the equity premium can explain is a fraction of 1%. So, yes, the standard theory explains that there is a premium, but it is off by one or two orders of magnitude. So the equity premium is a quantitative puzzle. And the equity premium puzzle is robust, which means that if we make some uh, uh, pretty simple adjustments to our standard economic model, then the equity premium will not go away. Um, now, the equity premium puzzle is also associated with, a, with a, its sister puzzle, the risk-free rate puzzle. If we sort of plug in a very high level of risk aversion in, uh, the, uh, in our equations, we can, ex we can get a high equity premium, but then that high risk aversion will give us also a, um, uh, a very high risk-free rate. Okay, so that, so it, the puzzle then has two sides. Our models predict a very low premium and a very high level of the interest rate. So it fails us in two ways. Now, there's a host of related puzzles. For example, the variance of the stock returns is too high relative to what our models predict. Uh, the variance of the interest rate is uh, uh, too low, 
and the returns also are too predictable in practice relative to what our models predict. But I'll focus on the equity premium. Now, here let's step back and uh, uh, in the spirit of uh, the LSE motto, so let's uh, try to understand why are we interested in this. And I'm going to look at briefly from the perspective of investors and from the perspective of uh, an economist. Why should investors care about the rational explanation? And the answer is simple, because if there is no rational explanation as to of what happened in the past, even though it could not have forecasted it, but now if we cannot even, having looked at what happened, you don't have a rational explanation as to why things happened the way they happened, then we are powerless in forecasting the future. Now, why should economists care about the rational explanation? Because it is something is one of the simplest, most fundamental quantities in our asset uh, pricing theories. Okay. If, we ca if we cannot explain the order of magnitude of this gross quantity, the re basic, re the average return of equities over that on the risk-free rate, then we have no hope of explaining more subtle phenomena like the, we know that value stocks. Uh, have on average higher return than growth stocks. Value is the opposite of uh, growth. Value is stocks that they have a high book-to-market ratio. Uh, and again, it is a puzzle. Now, if we cannot explain the equity premium puzzle, we cannot explain that. We cannot explain why small capitalization stocks have on, on average a higher return than, than large capitalization stocks, although this has not been the case in the, in the recent past. Uh, then it's the so-called momentum, that stocks that have had past high returns tend to have high returns in the future. It's a momentum effect. We have no hope of explaining that, which are sort of more subtle effects. Um, typically, returns of long-term bonds are higher than returns on short-term bonds, okay, the term premium. Again, that's something very interesting we'd like to understand. And lastly, we would like to, uh, and to feel confident as to these basic assumptions that we make, which are the foundations of our economic model and are also the foundations for uh, building models that aid economic policy and to understand growth and understand how we can make economies grow, if we do not understand the fundamentals, the basic guts of the model, then we, we will have problems in understanding these bigger questions, economic policy. So I'm going to talk about three explanations here briefly and then leave plenty of time for questions. And these explanations sort of relate on uh, work that I have done and other people have done. So the first explanation it says in simple terms that job loss matters. Okay? So let's look at an example here because once you see it, it's very, very simple. Consider the first scenario that... Uh, um, Consider 100 equally paid investors. I'm going to talk about this audience. Where we are a few more than 100, but suppose that all of us, well, suppose we were 100, and in the first scenario, investors know that the salary over the next year of each one of us will be cut by 1%. Then the macroeconomists would report that the per capita income would drop by 1%. The second scenario is that the investors know that one of them, chosen by lottery, will be fired and lose her salary for good. The salary of the other 99 investors will not change. Again, the, uh, if we look at the aggregate quantities, which we sometimes do in economics, the per capita income, uh, income will drop by 1%. So if we just focus on the aggregate quantities, and some of our economic models so that try to look at the big picture, justifiably look at the big picture, look at the, the total wages or the per capita wages, those uh, uh, models are blind to the distinction between uh, the first scenario and the second scenario. Now, job loss matters because although in both scenarios per capita income drops by 1%, Investors care much more about uh, the second the, if they are in the second scenario than in the first scenario. And why is that? And 
for three reasons, and all three are important to make this story hang together. Job loss is uninsurable. If we go back to this case, if the hundred of us could uh, sort of make an agreement either sort of between us or through a, a, an insurance company and say that in the second scenario, the person, we all, all self-insure and the one of us who loses their job is going to receive 1% of the income of, the other nine, of each one of the other 99 people, then we would revert to the first scenario. Okay. But we do not have such markets, and there's good reason we don't have such markets. Yes, we have social security, but uh, that doesn't carry us very far. Because remember, we are not looking at the average uh, uh, household. We are looking at those who are marginal or play in the stock market. So non-trivial non, uh, players in the stock market. And for those people, whatever this, the social security benefits are, they are not going to make a big difference. Losing one's job is big business. And uh, there's a good reason why we do not have, uh, uh, we cannot buy insurance against losing our job, because if we did, then we would all stop working. So there's a, so what, what we would call a moral hazard problem. So the first feature of job loss is that it's uninsurable risk. And the second, it is persistent and has long-term implications. Now you may question how persistent that is, because at least in the U.S., people who lose their job typically find another one within six months. So it doesn't look like uh, that this uh, calamity lasts very long. But it does in the sense that we are talking about someone who is at this, the phase in their lifetime that they are uh, saving. Okay, they are marginal in the stock market. And if a middle-level manager loses his or her job, then it's not clear that we'll get another job at the same pay level. We get another job in six months, but at a lower level. So the effect is persistent. And another key ingredient here is that it is counter-cyclical. These events of the upheaval in the job market and job losses are more likely to occur in... Uh, in a downturn of the, in a recession than in a, in a time of expansion where firms unemployment is high and firms are growing. Okay, now how can we put these uh, three things together? The fact that job loss is uninsurable, is persistent and counter-cyclical and tell a story about the equity premium. Investment in equities fails to hedge the risk of job loss. Not only fails to, to hedge it, but it works in the opposite direction. Before investing in equity, I know that if there is a recession, my savings are going to drop in value, but that's a time that there is this heightened risk of one of us may be fired. So in that sense, make, if that's, given that that is the case, it makes me very reluctant to invest in equity. But you know that the stock market clears, which means that someone holds the stocks. And the way the price mechanism does it is the stock prices drop enough so that the equity premium is high enough to induce economic agents to buy equities. So if we use these elements and put them down in a model, we find that it takes us a long way towards understanding the equity premium puzzle. And notice that then it is a variation of the standard model that instead of looking at aggregate quantities per capita consumption, we looked at the uninsurable and idiosyncratic income shocks. This is an example of one line of research that uh, uh, if this were a technical audience, I would start giving you tables and numbers. But here we are going to proceed to the second explanation to give us a flavor of uh, something else. Borrowing constraints. Now, in models of that we sometimes model an investor as having an infinite horizon, then that investor who ultimately holds all the, all the assets in the market is unlikely to imagine that that investor is going to find him or herself borrowing constraint. So you have to embed this in what we call in economics an overlapping generations model where we look at the, three, the, the phases of the life of an investor. 
And typically, we look at two phases, the saving generation and the desaving. We save while we work, and then we desave in our old age. But here, we're introducing another generation that comes before the saving. And we do that because, at least in the U.S., other than saving to, for their first mortgage and other than a saving in the form of paying off part of their mortgage, people start, have enough assets to start investing in the, in the stock market in their late 30s. So until then, from the age that people are off college or off their uh, parents, from their uh, early 20s until their middle 30s, there is this other generation of people who find themselves being borrowing constraint. They would like to invest in stocks given that the, 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 the premium is large. Now, how would they invest in stocks? One would be to decrease their current consumption and invest in stocks. But given that they expect that their future uh, income is going to be large and they want to uh, equalize their income across time, their consumption across time, they are unwilling or they find it very costly to decrease their consumption today to invest in equities, even though equities are very attractive. So why don't they borrow? Well, you cannot borrow easily to invest in equity. You can borrow, get a mortgage to buy a house. You can borrow against your credit cards, but that's very, very expensive. But borrowing to invest in equity is often not very easy. Okay? So for this reason, young people stay out of the stock market. And it's only at a later phase in their career, uh, in their middle 30s or, or thereafter, that they start investing in equities. So the stocks are held primarily by the saving middle-aged and the, the saving old directly or through their pension plans or other financial institutions. So that says that stock is, uh, and, and we have talked about investors who at some point become rich enough that they invest in equity. We also have investors, households, that they never have enough money to invest in equity at any stage of their life. Okay? Formally, you call it the problem of limited market participation. And here I, ju I just gave you an example through the borrowing constraint on the young where we have limited stock market participation. That means that equities are concentrated in the hands of a subset of investors, okay? a subset who eventually at some stage in their life uh, save in, in equities. And uh, these people then have, be, have to be convinced, this smaller subset to be convinced to hold equities. So, and the reason to be convinced is for the premium to be sufficiently attractive. So if you work that in, in a theory, that sort of explains why we have a large equity premium. Now, this raises another more subtle question. Now, if the borrowing, if, if the young would like to borrow to invest in equity, why would this middle-aged also find the premium that attractive? They would also like to borrow and invest in equity. So our eagerness to explain the equity premium seems to, ra to raise another puzzle here, whoever holds bonds. And in fact, so that, that's, that's a problem with a number of models. So here is a more subtle effect. You, you say that the, um, the, the young would like, you define the equity premium attractive, and they would like to borrow, but they cannot to invest in equity, because for them, equity is partial hedge against their future income, which now, how much is going to be in the future is uncertain. But the middle-aged already more or less know what our income is going to be in the next 10, 20 years, and then they're going to have no income, just pension later on. So they don't have this additional incentive to uh, invest in equities. That's why they spread their wealth both in equities and in bonds. So you can fine-tune the model to explain not only why the middle-aged uh, hold the equities, why we have that equity premium, but also why there is demand for bonds as well, despite the equity premium. Anyway, you can 
put that in a formal model, do something that we call calibration, have a, have a toy model that you plug in numbers and see what it explains, and you can also look at empirical evidence. Now let me talk briefly, very briefly, about the third explanation, and this is the last one I'm going to talk about, habit persistence. Now, forget I haven't defined yet habit persistence, but generally in a recession, returns and consumption are low and marginal utility is high. In the standard model, this effect is there, but is insufficient to explain the equity premium. We need a, 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 another kick. The way you tend to get such a kick through habit persistence is follows. Let me define habit persistence. It, is, it says that our utility from current consumption is, uh, depends not only on uh, how much you consume now, but also how much we consumed in the past. Specifically, our utility from today's consumption is driven by how much we consume today over and above our habit level, which is formed based on our past consumption, which is a very sensible story. It's a story that is used in other walks of economics to explain addiction, for example, that uh, your, bo your body gets addicted to a certain level of uh, of a drug and we need an amount above that to derive any utility, but it's also uh, general in uh, consuming ordinary goods. Now, how does habit persistence help explain the equity premium? How habit works? In a recession, a decrease in consumption increases the habit to consumption ratio, okay? Because in the past, you had a high, high consumption and therefore high habit. Now in the recession, uh, the consumption decreases, the habit to consumption ratio uh, increases, and the risk aversion increases. So what we could not explain from constant risk aversion, as we had in the past, now if the risk aversion is high in a recession and low in, uh, in an expansion, that sort of worked in a model works in the direction of explaining the equity premium. Okay, so what I try to do here is uh, I just gave you a sampling of explanations and I gave you a sampling relating to work that uh, I have partly contributed and we talked about job loss as an example of what we more generally call market incompleteness that although we have this plethora of, uh, of derivative securities, options, futures, and exotic derivatives, there are some uh, whole uh, sectors of the market, like the labor market, where we are very deficient, in, very deficient in having anything close to a complete market for the simple reason that we said that we would all stop working if we did. Then we also talked about another uh, variation, boring constraints, and about uh, preferences that are very sort of uh, pretty standard in economics, but in the past they have not been exploited extensively towards understanding this phenomenon. If we put these things together, that provides a promising vantage point from which to study the prices of assets and their returns both in theoretical models and in uh, uh, empirical testing. Now, this is just a sampling of explanations and there are many others that I'm not uh, going to address. But for example, we can make alternative assumptions and preferences. We can allow at the aggregate level of disastrous effects. The job loss is, a, is at the personal level a disastrous effect, but we can have at the aggregate level a war, for example, the Second World War is a major aggregate disaster. We can look at distorted beliefs and learning, other market imperfections, uh, liquidity risk, um, data problems other than limited participation, and uh, others, the last two are sort of econometric technical considerations. But there are a, number, a spectrum of different ways in which you can address this. And you can chisel away uh, to, uh, towards the, the puzzle. So let me conclude and then have some questions. So what I have uh, argued and have shown both in the US and international experience for different sub-periods that both the average, so the historical equity premium is high, but also after adjusting, trying to make an adjustment from what happened 
to what people expected, the expected equity premia across countries are large. The second point is that this premium can be rationalized by extending the standard economic model. And so the, that sort of, and then I, I conclude by what uh, I said at the beginning. Why should we be interested in that? Because rational economic and financial theory is a flexible and useful tool in understanding the asset prices, in making economic predictions, and guiding economic policy. And you can only be, have some confidence in that if our models can explain what you observe. And at least in the case of the equity premium, uh, we have gone through a rocky period, but there is some uh, general understanding that at least we have chiseled our way towards that problem. But more than sort of thinking of this as an uh, uh, analysis of the equity premium, uh, I think I, I strive to show you how we do what we do as financial economists and why you do it. We look at phenomena, we try to understand them, and that gives, gives us some confidence about our, our financial and economic theories to talk about other phenomena and predict about the future and uh, uh, give advice in economic policy. Thank you very much for your attention. So now I think we have some time for questions from the audience. Uh, George, would you like to be your own chairperson for this? Uh, and, uh, sure. Okay, good. This is where I can screen out the questions I don't like. That's right. If you don't like them, send them to me. Okay. Uh, okay, yes. Uh, we have a microphone. We, we seem to be seeing um, increasing um, evidence that private equity and also quoted companies are raising debt to retire equity. Does this start to erode the equity premium over time? Well, um, uh, private equity is a more recent phenomenon. Um, and I, I think it plays a role nowadays. But uh, the, looking at the evidence from 1871 to the present, there was a large stretch where private equity was not uh, a major uh, player. Um, so I, I, I listed a lot of uh, different causes that in every sub-period you could say this has been the effect or the other has been the effect. Um, more for the present, I think, a, a, a lot of apprehension is about what will happen to the baby boomers when they start uh, um, unloading their savings in order to consume, which is what they did in the first place. They save for their old age, and now they're at the stage they're beginning to dissave. And there is, uh, there is no consensus amongst economists as to whether that will cause a downward pressure on the prices. Yes. There's a lot of recent work in finance showing that the expected return for equities depends a lot on the microstructure characteristics of the individual stocks. So wouldn't it make more sense to measure the equity premium relative to the lowest expected return tranche of stocks rather than the average? Um, you, you, are, you are raising this a very important question that uh, we should also look at the premium of each individual stock. Uh, what I try to do here is to say, let's look at, at, the, at the biggest picture, the market as a whole. And... Uh, I, I try to, to say that the stakes are very high because if we cannot explain what's happening in the big picture, the market as a whole versus the risk-free rate, then we have no hope in understanding what is happening at, uh, uh, at the individual stock level, uh, given that, as you correctly point out, that individual stocks have, can have low or high liquidity. I also pointed out that we have other sub-indices sub and other sort of segments of the market, the value versus growth, small capitalization stocks, stocks that are highly illiquid. And uh, then I did not at attempt here to explain any of those, but yes, we have theories that say that uh, illiquid stocks are going to command a higher premium. So it, it does make sense to address uh, those stocks in particular. That's sort of a, the next step. I just focused here on the, uh, on the first, the simplest picture. Let's look at the market as a whole.
where to invest in an index. You can invest through a Vanguard fund or something that uh, is uh, with 10 basis points. You can buy the index. So in that case, there is no liquidity problem. If you cannot uh, have an answer at that uh, aggregate level, then we'll have a harder time to, to explain what has happened at, uh, at in the cross-sections of stocks, stock by stock. But that's a very uh, important uh, challenge, yes. Yes. Clearly, the equity risk premium is very volatile, as you have shown, and it's probably the reason why you took a period of 20 years. But even in those 20 years, different periods, you have significant changes in the size of the equity risk premium. Have you looked at what happens at the different times to see what might have determined a high equity risk premium in one period and a lower one at another period? Well, uh, you're absolutely right in pointing out that the equity premium is volatile. In fact, if we just look at the experience in one country, we, uh, the, uh, my statistician and econometrician colleagues here will, will keep me honest. I'll have to admit that statistically we cannot even say that the equity premium is positive. But if we look at sort of the longest periods that we have here and we look across countries, the equity premium is large. But yes, it is very volatile across periods, and that's an important uh, economic inquiry to understand uh, uh, how uh, to predict the equity premium from period to period. Uh, I have indicated here briefly, without bringing other considerations, because you can study the microeconomy and see what's happening to a lot of other aggregate economic quantities that you can use to forecast, just here by just using uh, this univariate series, I have shown a simple uh, adjustment you can make from the uh, expected long-term premium of 7%, how we come down to 4%. So that's one way of predicting there. If we just look at the, uh, if we think that it's going to be a correction in the price-dividend ratio. But uh, it is a major uh, economic inquiry to, uh, to understand uh, what uh, forecasts uh, a premium. <coughs> One thing that we find that we have tantalizing evidence is that the price-dividend ratio that goes up and down, but the price-dividend ratio forecasts the premium. But we find that we are totally hopeless in forecasting the premium one uh, year ahead. But we can forecast sometime, in some sub-periods, the premium over the next five or ten years. But there are other sub-periods where our model does not do a good job. So we build more fancier theories where we say that there is a so-called formally a, a change in regime so that the workings of the economy change from period to period such that in some sub-periods the price-dividend ratio can forecast the premium and in others it cannot. But then how do you know if there has been a change in regime? So we don't do a good job in forecasting. I know it is big business, it's very attractive, but we do not do a very good job at that. Yes. Uh, yeah, I understand what you're saying. You're saying that in the, in the um, over long period there's the, the equity premium, but over short periods it's volatile. Um, I'm thinking, therefore, that if we instead of take 1926 to 2004, we should we had alternatively have taken. Uh, 1927 to 2005 or 1928 to 2006 or something like that, would you expect a similar uh, equity premium to emerge? Uh, I, I should briefly I, – I, I could obviously do it in any uh, sub-period you wish to do it, and I, uh, people have, have done it for any sub-period. The, uh, the simple thing you see here is uh, <coughs> stopping in 2000 – so the first uh, column, and stopping in 2004, where the returns have been very different in those four years, sort of that gives us sort of an indirect indication that because we are looking at a very long period, the experience, however sort of harsh of an experience over a small sub-period, does not change the, the average very much. So that's why I presented things both for stopping in 2000 and 2004 
than the second comparison of the last two columns. It does not make that much of a difference when you look at the very long perspective. So you could include the 1928 crash or exclude it. And um, uh, there is, incidentally, there is no good reason in excluding any such period because what happened then could happen again. Perhaps for different reasons, you have uh, taken better care of the banking system, but it could occur for different reasons. Uh, yes. Yeah, I just uh, wonder to what extent, looking at some of the countries there um, that you showed, you showed I think Australia as being a, a sort of a, a great country in theory to invest in, and I think South Africa as well. Um, now, if you look at the history, for example, of Australia, you'll find it's a it's a country of booms and busts. Um, you know, high levels of relative fraud and things. And I, I look at those figures and I wonder whether those, the, the, the raw data, for example, is, say, taken from the ASX or the Australian Stock Exchange Indices or where it comes from because I know the ASX quotes figures which are with dividends reinvested and that is not comparing the real return that is, that is given, say, on bonds where when you receive the bond, you receive the, the yield, you know, at the end of every six months or whatever. So I just wonder to what extent, um, say, all these figures are necessarily, say, as accurate as, say, I presume you're using the S&P 500 or something in the U.S., um, and to also to what extent, say, companies that are, say, suddenly going to bankruptcy, I believe most indices actually suddenly exclude those and rebase them. So in other words, the various stock exchanges are giving a very positive view of the returns that they're actually generating. So if you have any comments. I know that in the major uh, U.S. database, the, the, cent the Center of Research and Security Prices of the University of Chicago, they are very different to, very, very careful to avoid uh, the type of biases that uh, uh, they look at one point and uh, if conditional on a firm being having five for 10 years, then they backfill the data for that firm for 10 years. Say. That's uh, obviously a bias. They are very careful in doing that. I'm not sure to what extent other countries are very careful. The data on other countries are careful for that. I did not collect this, this data. This is, by the way, it's an excellent source. Uh, it's a book by Dimson, Marsh, and Staunton that now is actually uh, distributed by Ipodson Associated, which now, Associates, which now is Morningstar, that provides this kind of data up to the uh, minute. Um, so, the, the, again, I did not try to explain things across countries, although uh, we as economists are very much uh, concerned about that, and do we see what is the uh, legal system, for example, what is the uh, property rights system in the different countries. That's one approach to try to understand uh, what uh, uh, explains uh, growth across different countries and, their, and ultimately uh, returns in their uh, stock exchanges. And that's the very important investigation in economics. From my perspective here, I had a much more modest goal to show that although we have all this variation, so the, they are all about uh, 3 to 6%. I think the 2% because these are geometric and uh, is big. So, uh, yes, uh, from many of your questions, I understand that what you're saying, we only scratch the surface. Yes, only scratch the surface. I looked at sort of the, the, the most uh, fundamental puzzle in the sense to address the big picture why across different exchanges the returns in the stock market have been so much greater than the short term rate and then is the second investigation uh, if we feel somewhat confident that we can address the big picture then we can look at differences across countries but that's a very worthwhile investigation uh, yes if, if you looked at the, um, the return on investment, uh, holding uh, the, the stock constant over the time, in other words, if you didn't allow for substitution of newly uh, um, successful companies, would you, what would be the type of return? Uh, if the analogy here, for example, party gaming, which is an Internet uh, gambling stock, was in the FTSE 100, and at the time you would make the investment, 
party gaming would be in the basket. By the time a year later, party gaming fell by virtue of uh, the U.S. decision to uh, you know, take measures against Internet gambling companies, fell out of the index, but the, uh, the stock is, is now close to, close to worthless. So if you took a, an, an investment position at the start and then allowed for the, uh, let's call it the disasters that could occur, do, do you get a, uh, a somewhat different a picture of investment returns that could lead to greater risk and therefore a greater premium? Okay. Uh, let me answer your question in two parts. The first one, uh, in all these investigations, there is no bias in the sense that we, uh, we buy a basket of assets. If, if one stock goes down to zero, that's going to be reflected in the return in that period without sort of looking ahead and say it is going to go down to zero, I'm not going to include in my portfolio ahead of time. So technically there is no bias. Now, investing in a set of assets but not adjusting with new coming assets, uh, that by construction leads to one type of firms. These are sort of uh, uh, maybe after 50 years you'll end up only with utilities or something, which are uh, sort of... Uh, uh, stocks that have specific characteristics. They are large firms. We know that large firms have higher returns, lower returns on average than small capitalization stocks, and they uh, are very different than the high-tech firms. So it, we end up uh, tilting our portfolio towards one industry, and therefore we'll have uh, uh, returns consistent with that particular uh, portfolio uh, sub-index. Now, as to these uh, results, I try to present results from different indices. You can look at the S&P 500 index, but you can look at the, uh, which is a pretty small, uh, not comprehensive index. You can look at the uh, Russell 2000. You can look at uh, the entire universe of uh, uh, crisp uh, stocks for the New York Stock Exchange and uh, uh, NASDAQ and uh, have them evaluated so you can have a very comprehensive index, and the results are about the same. Whether they differ by 1% here and there, this is not the focus of our investigation. You're looking at the big picture. They're about 5% or 7%. And uh, as long as you're careful to avoid any uh, statistical biases, the backfield problem, uh, then uh, you, you find these results. Now, the statistical concerns about the backfield problem are very important in uh, studying hedge fund returns. And there the results are very controversial. And when some academics point out sometimes that hedge funds adjusting for risk and for all the statistical biases have not done better than the market, then there is an uproar in the financial community. But these kind of uh, uh, biases that they're concerned with are very important in studying uh, hedge fund returns, where we have, by construction, a very small uh, period. But I don't think they affect uh, the stock index returns. Yes? Okay. Uh, thank you. I just have two thoughts here. Perhaps we can shed some light into um, resolving this um, puzzle. The first one is, we, as we know, we have a foreign exchange puzzle, or we call it interest rate puzzle. We know that in, in Japan we have a zero interest rate and people can easily hinge, I mean, basically borrow Japanese yen and then exchange it into U.S. dollars and buy U.S. bonds. And you gain 5% and safe, uh, this is a safe, in, uh, safe ISIS, and then you gain 5% overnight. And then later on, in some year, you change it back to Japanese yen and you I mean, this is a free asset, but this is a puzzle there. We have 5% uh, again without any risk. This may also explain partly or at least shed some hot lights into this equity puzzle as we know it. And second one, have, do you know or do we have any explanations for this equity puzzle um, by using behavior finance? I just by, by using behavior? Yeah, behavior finance. Thank you. Um, since just answering the second question could take me another half hour and people are getting a little antsy, let me answer very briefly just the second part. Uh, for the first part, saying that uh, 
in uh, international finance exchange rates. Yes, there's another whole set of, uh, of puzzles, but I don't think this is the right place and time to get into those. You correctly pointed out that there are other puzzles as well. But uh, the role of behavioral finance, which I have I've not talked about here, uh, is, um, is a controversial uh, thing in, um, in finance and economics because uh, we do not at this point have a unified theory on, uh, by using, it's okay, it's okay to say that, okay, investors are not rational, but they systematically act in a certain way. And then based on that, you can build a theory. The point is you cannot, in behavioral finance, agree what these alternative ways. And at this point, some people have some uh, reservations in the sense that we need one psychological phenomenon to address a certain behavior in one specific context, and we need to draw on another behavioral phenomenon to explain another one. And if we don't have some organizing principles, that some principles that apply across a wide range of phenomena, then we cannot predict ahead of time. We can always be looking back at explaining what happened, but we cannot predict what will happen uh, with our economic policy, and uh, therefore, it is not, in that sense, is not a very useful science. Incidentally, since you chose to talk about behavioral, uh, there is something which I find even much more exciting, and this is finance people who team up with uh, uh, neurosurgeons and sort of examine what is happening in the brain. And I was saw recently some very recent research. For example, one of the basic uh, points that people use in behavioral finance is to say that we are much more averse to losses than we, we, we like gains. Okay? We have a kink in the utility function. And yet, people sort of look into the brain, which part of the brain lights up when investors look at um, upside risk versus downside risk, and they find that the uh, response of the brain is pretty symmetric. So I think this is all a fascinating area. Maybe 10 years from now, whoever is standing here will be telling to an audience a very different story. And whether it's going to be some of the stories that we hear in behavioral finance or some of the more fundamental work that we see, more very scientific work in studying the brain, I don't know. But uh, I think these are all uh, directions that will keep economics uh, uh, very live uh, business. Um. So I, I think that uh, with that, uh, we'll have to call a halt to the questions. And so I just would like you to join me in thanking uh, Professor Kanta Tadidis for an excellent and illuminating. <laughs>